I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and family whose daughter worked for Kamala Harris. We are having this conversation about inciting violence and about someone attacking the family of the DA and the judge about the former president of the United States of America. It is really breathtaking. That's former federal prosecutor Andrew Weissman responding to Donald Trump's attacks on the judge overseeing his criminal case. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. No matter who you are, we cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. After the first ever arraignment of a former U.S. president, I spoke to Weissman, who once served as a lead prosecutor on special counsel Robert Mueller's team investigating Russian interference in the 2016 election. It doesn't matter if you are dealing drugs on the street in New York City, you can be held to account. And if you are committing crimes in the White House, you can be held to account. A 34-count indictment alleges that Trump falsified business records to conceal reimbursements to attorney Michael Cohen for a payment in the final weeks of the 2016 campaign to silence an adult film actress with whom Trump had an affair. Michael Cohen has a role, but I was very interested that they sort of downplayed his role. And there also appears to be a lot of documents that are corroborative. Weissman, who co-hosts the new MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, sees significant legal hurdles ahead for the New York prosecutors. So the issue is, can you use a federal crime when the statute says it has to be in furtherance or to conceal another crime? So that's something that certainly will be litigated. But he also sees greater legal peril looming over Trump, who's also facing state and federal investigations into efforts to overturn the 2020 election and his handling of classified documents. If we are to hold our leaders criminally accountable, would you have preferred one of the other cases happen first? Yes. I just think in terms of public acceptance and understanding, it would be preferable. Andrew Weissman, welcome to Firing Line. Nice to be here. For the first time in the history of the United States, a former president has been arraigned in a court of law. You were a lead prosecutor in special counsel Robert Mueller's office. You're a criminal law professor at New York University. As former President Trump was entering the courthouse in Lower Manhattan, you said it was both, quote, sad to see and also affirming of the criminal justice system. Why? It, there's no question it's sad to see. There, I think anybody who's been a career prosecutor, as I have, and I've also been a defense lawyer, I mean, it's, it is... It's not great when you see somebody, it's a human being who's, um, you know, being in the, entering into the criminal justice system. They have a family, um, there are consequences to them. And also, as you said, it's the former president of the United States. And so just the whole idea that somebody who could be at such a revered and high rank within the United States has sunk to this level. On the other hand, the real sadness to me is sort of the debasing of the White House, um, that you had somebody who committed these alleged crimes in the White House, that when you read the charges, the actual payments were being made while he was president of the United States. And that, to me, was the part that's affirming of the rule of law, where you say to yourself, you know what, it doesn't matter if you are um, dealing drugs on the street in New York City, you can be held to account. And if you are committing crimes in the White House, you can be held to account. And one of the things you mentioned was, you know, this is happening in the United States for the first time. That's true. Um, but we're not the first country where this has happened. If you look globally, and I know as Americans, we tend not to sort of think about our place in the international um, sphere, but we are not the first so-called first world country that has had this issue. There's the president of of um, uh, France, there's the leader of Israel. There are many, many people who have um, been held to account for criminal conduct. Um, and we are just now joining the ranks of those countries. I think we'd held ourselves to a higher standard up to this point. Um, yeah. 
The process has not been immune from politics. The Wall Street Journal editorial page opined, doubting whether, quote, this case would have been brought against any defendant not named Donald Trump. What's your response? So I think that is a really important issue for people to think about and tackle because as much as, for instance, I'm saying, let's look at the international example and you can think of righteous prosecutions where you say, oh, it's really important for leaders to be held to account. Many people could point to many situations. Um, For instance, I studied Ukraine for a number of years in the special counsel Mueller investigation, and that's notorious for a president who basically had a show trial for his adversary. And so you're trying to figure out how do you hold leaders to account when they commit criminal conduct, but they're not, it's not selective prosecution. It's not becoming a so-called banana republic. And I think the way I think about that is one, does the prosecutor have the proof? Do they have the evidence that's going to lead to a grand jury charging and to a jury, ultimately, remember, it's not just a prosecutor who makes the decision. Ultimately, there's a check on that, which is that jurors have to find that there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt and they have to be unanimous. But I think there's even more than that because it's not enough that you can prove this to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. It also has to be for a crime that is sort of routinely prosecuted, that you haven't picked some arcane uh, crime to single out this particular person. So I think um, people have to make up their own minds. I think Alvin Bragg yesterday went a little bit in his press conference to try and address that issue by saying the kinds of charges that were brought here are sort of bread and butter charges in New York. Um, And so he was trying to say, you know, this is um, us applying the rule of law because we would do this regardless of whether the person's name was Trump or not. Um, And I, I think... Maybe because the Manhattan charges are um, feel less serious than the other crimes that Donald Trump is under investigation for, this may become something that is an interesting and maybe debatable issue with respect to the Manhattan charges. But it's a lot harder, I think, to make that argument if, for instance, Donald Trump were to be charged in the so-called January yeah. 6th case. Yeah. Former Speaker Nancy Pelosi tweeted, quote, No one is above the law, and everyone has the right to a trial to prove innocence. Of course, this raised eyebrows, because isn't the defendant, even if it is a former president, innocent until proven guilty? Absolutely. Um, I I don't know uh, Nancy Pelosi, and I... Um, I assume that that she would regret the wording of that. That is absolutely the case. It doesn't matter whether it's Donald Trump, whether you like the person or not like the person. It is the government that has to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's their burden and they should welcome that burden. And it also is required that there be a unanimous jury. Um, And that is, I mean, I was a prosecutor for many years. And you know what? If you can't prove it, you don't deserve um, to have a conviction in that case, that is your obligation um, to present that evidence. Um, and the defendant doesn't have to do anything. He or she can just sit back and they don't have to cross-examine. They have a right to, but they don't have to do anything to prove innocence. They are, they are presumed innocent when they walk into that courtroom unless and until a jury finds beyond a reasonable doubt unanimously that they're guilty. What is the best outcome? For this case, you know that's one where that's not that's not with all due respect that's not for you or for me. That is going to be a jury. And my sort of answer to that question is, if you believe in the rule of law, it means that you are entitled um, as a defendant to first a lengthy period of time after charges are brought to prepare. You're entitled to discovery. There's a due process clause in this country. This goes to, a lot of people think prosecutors are just trying to seek a conviction. You have a dual obligation. And part of that is you have to turn over all sorts of information to the defense. You have to turn over everything that is exculpatory or tends to exculpate. You have to turn over impeachment evidence. In this case, there will be tons of impeachment evidence for, for instance, Michael Cohen. All of that has to be provided to the defense. They're entitled to all of that and to make their best arguments. They're entitled to make motions. A lot of people are going to be frustrated thinking, 
It took so long for these charges to be brought. But part of the rule of law is this process now where the defendant is entitled to all of that information and to have a lot of time to work with their defense counsel, which they're constitutionally entitled to, to have effective assistance, to prepare, and to make all necessary motions. I mean, just remember, defense counsel is supposed to zealously advocate. Um, and so all it doesn't matter that it's Donald Trump. It, you shouldn't be, there are defendants who you think are heinous and there are defendants who you might, may not think are so heinous, like this was a one-time aberrational thing, but that doesn't matter. They're still entitled to the rule of law. So I think that at, to sort of get to the point of this, which is at the end of that process, whatever the jury decides, that is the result. Whether it's an acquittal or it's conviction, if you believe in the rule of law, then you're all in for that. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg charged Trump with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the state of New York. The charges listed in the indictment all relate to the $130,000 hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels by Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen. But Bragg also issued an accompanying document, a statement of facts that details a much broader array of events that include payments by AMI, American Media Inc., the former publisher of National Enquirer, to Playboy model Karen McDougal, who says that she had an affair with Trump. Why did District Attorney Bragg not include any of the additional details in the indictment? So that's a really interesting thing that's a peculiarity of New York law. Um, so federally, which, and I was a federal prosecutor, not to involve, um, you know, all, uh, disclosure being made. Um, this is not sort of it, the way I practice, but that's because I practice in the federal system. In the federal system, all of this would have been in one document. Mm -hmm. In the state system, they can have two documents. A lot of times they just have the sort of boilerplate indictment, which is a bare bones document that just recites what are the crimes, but it doesn't tell a story. It's not a so-called speaking indictment. Um, if you look at the Paul Manafort case, you know, people say you always try your last case. So in the Paul Manafort case, that's a very, very lengthy document that tells a really lengthy story. And at the end of it, there are the charges. Well, here it's basically split in two. You have sort of the story of what happened, and then you have a charging instrument, which is the indictment. So that's why you sort of have these two separate pieces, um, but they obviously are going to be read together. Um, and it, it's true for the defense. It does give a lot more information, not just to the public. It helps the defense know what is actually going to be alleged. What are the crimes? What are the likely witnesses, the kinds of documents that might be used? Indictments aren't static. Is there a chance there could be more charges in the future? Yes. So, you know, the pure speculation, but maybe educated speculation. Um, I was I was interested in sort of two things that happened at the arraignment yesterday, uh, which have to do with scheduling. Um, so neither side was particularly interested in a speedy resolution. Um, the next court appearance is in December. So this could be wrong, but there's sort of two ways I looked at, at that issue. On the one hand, Donald Trump, uh, if you think you are totally innocent and you want to vindicate your rights and you want to be cleared, especially if you're running for president and you think this didn't happen, I didn't do it, he had the ability to go into court and say, I want a speedy trial. Um, that didn't happen. In fact, when proposed dates were, were given to the court, he said, it's too soon. Let's put it off. So I found that interesting. Um, uh, that's, there's nothing wrong with that strategy. It's just inconsistent, I'd say, with what he's saying publicly um, about it. Um, and then with the government, uh, when I have been in that situation and I am pursuing other investigative avenues that may or may not come to fruition, but I want some time to see if I can make that case and then add them in. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that the case is sort of kicked down the road a bit is useful um, because I'm thinking, okay, well, the next court appearance is in December. Um, I have bought myself a little bit of time to see what's going on. And one other piece that sort of goes to that is that the charges that were brought uh, and unsealed yesterday are ones where there was a statute of limitations issue. What that means is that under state law, certain charges have to be brought within a certain amount of time after they've occurred because um, the defendant's entitled to repose. 
that's the reason you had to go forward as soon as you could if you're um, DA Bragg. That statute of limitations issue is a bit broader for financial crimes, particularly if you can show that those financial crimes extended, you know, maybe even to the present um, in terms of what was, what's happening at the Trump organization. So, um, in other words, you didn't have to bring all the charges at once. And that, that might be the reason that you're seeing sort of a stutter step. Um, what would additional charges be? So there we actually have at least a bit of a roadmap. It doesn't mean that they will. this will happen. But Letitia James, who is the attorney general in New York, brought a very detailed civil case, not a criminal case, but a civil case against Donald Trump, uh, the Trump Organization, various family members, um, alleging fraud. And it was an incredibly detailed scheme with a lot of reference in a massive civil complaint with lots of detail about um, essentially inflating your assets when you're going to banks and seeking wanting to get loans because the, the banks like to see that you have lots of assets. Um, but when it came time to deal with the tax authorities where you don't want to pay taxes, suddenly those assets are devalued um, and you have a lot of debt on your on your books. Um, and so that is basically the you know the, the sort of nutshell of what the scheme is. And then Letitia James in her complaint details it in all sorts of ways, dealing with all sorts of properties. It'll obviously be for her to prove um, at a trial, which will happen this fall. So you think his business practices are on the table? I think they could very well be something that is still under investigation. Uh, in New York, falsifying a business record is a misdemeanor, but it can be raised to a felony charge if the falsified records are intended to further or conceal another crime. Now, Trump was charged with 34 felony counts, not 34 misdemeanors. And the indictment and the events of this week have left the public with the question, what is the underlying crime that raises these misdemeanors to felonies? Absolutely. And that's where I think that there's a partial answer. And that's where I think that you can also uh, be critical of the what I understand is sort of the standard practice in the DA's office. Um, so I agree that if you are the defendant in this case, that you ultimately are entitled to know with respect to each of those 34 counts, what is the government's theory for um, what is the sort of what I'll call the felony bump up? What makes it a felony and not a misdemeanor? I fully expect that the defense will ask for something called a bill of particulars, which is a fancy legal term for I need more information or to defend this. I, total, I actually think that is a, a meritorious motion. Um, apparently, that is the practice in New York of sort of not doing that all up front. That's not how I would have done it. I'm not a state pro you know, prosecutor. Um, and there are various things that the, the, um, the DA did specify, but not in the indictment, not in the statement of facts that you were mentioning. But in his press conference, he did give some indications. But to be fair to the defense position, that he didn't articulate it by each specific statute and how it related to each specific count. Um, and that is, if you're a defense lawyer, you want those details. DA Bragg did give some context in his press conference for what the underlying crimes appear to be. And they fall, it seems to me, in three categories. Uh, federal campaign finance violations, state campaign finance violations, and then state tax fraud. Yes, there was one possible other one. Is there another one? It's there's there's is another there more? One. Well, there's there's one where he referred to AMI false business filings, and that um, it's unclear, but that may be one. But just to be clear, because we're having this discussion where we're sitting there going, is it three? Is it four? That is exactly why, in my view, the defense will be entitled to know exactly is it three? Is it four? And also. For each of those counts, what is the theory? Is it the same theory for each one? Because you could have certain um, false filings that are there to further or to conceal some things, but not others. And that if you are a defendant, you're entitled to know the government's theory in order to defend the case. Is tax fraud the strongest argument for the prosecution? 
I think that the the uh, AMI uh, filing and the tax fraud are potentially the strongest, and that's because the campaign finance charges or you know predicates for sort of bumping this up each have challenges. The federal one, the legal issue is. Is that really allowed? Um, does... In other words, is it in New York State? Let me just see if I can state this correctly. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yep. Um, there's speculation that Bragg is seeking to use an untested legal theory um, with respect to federal law. In other words, that the underlying crime that so-called bumps up the misdemeanor to a felony is actually not a state crime, but a federal crime. Exactly. And so the issue is, can you use a federal crime when the statute says it has to be in furtherance or to conceal another crime? Did it mean any crime in any state in the union and any federal crime, or did it mean any state crime? So that's something that certainly will be litigated and the defense will, will make its motion and the, and the court will have to decide. Conversely, on the state campaign finance issues, one of the issues is whether that is actually preempted. Because um, when you have a federal election, there is a rule of preemption when you're saying basically you can't have a lot, each state making up all of its own rules when you have a federal election. And so there is a preemption doctrine. One of the issues there is just how broad is that preemption doctrine? Because the states are allowed to do certain things um, in terms of regulating the way you vote. Um, so that's also an issue. And so that's one of the reasons that the AMI, AMI piece and the tax piece are seem just cleaner um, because those are they just have less to litigate. I also think there's one other um, theory, and again, we don't know if it's going to be used, but because if you there are 34 counts, the first one could be a misdemeanor. But the second one, if it's to conceal or further the first one, hmm. then that counts. And so you could end up with sort of one misdemeanor and 33 felonies. Um, so if you are, for instance, paying, uh, quote, legal fees, and you're denominating it as legal fees, but in fact, they're hush money payments, which seems like a very strong um, case in terms of what's been laid out, then each of those subsequent payments is actually meant to further the, the the initial crime. But well, that all remains to be seen because we don't actually know exactly um, how the DA is going to um, uh, argue the bump up with respect to each of those. One other quick point to note, though, is a sort of intricacy of New York law. Even though everything that was charged is a felony, um, the jury will be able to decide if the government does not prove or the state does not prove the bump up, they get to decide whether there's a lesser included offense, meaning the misdemeanor. So the government didn't need to charge both the felony and the misdemeanor because what will be instructed to the jury is if you find that they did X, Y, and Z, but not the bump up, then you can find the defendant guilty of the misdemeanor. At the end of the hearing, the judge said, we'll see you in December, which of course is just before the Iowa caucuses and as the presidential primary campaign for the GOP nomination for president will be getting underway. How does the spectacle of a national political campaign impact a local trial? Um, so we've never been in that situation. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what the court does. One indication uh, yesterday was the defense, if you noted, said we would like to uh, waive the appearance of Donald Trump at the next court appearance, meaning that he won't have to show up. Uh, and the court said, no, um, he is going to, this is a criminal case. In criminal cases, the defendant shows up uh, and you didn't hear him saying, you know, because you're running for office or might be busy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it reminds me when I clerked for a federal judge and a defendant was in much different circumstances, was arguing about why he couldn't make certain court appearances. I remember the judge was clerking for saying, I'm so sorry that this criminal case is interfering with your schedule. Um, meaning that's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. um, this is a criminal case. It is serious. It's important. Uh, we have, by all accounts, a very measured um, judge on, on this case, but it's sort of no nonsense. 
So I think that the criminal case is going to go forward as a first, uh, in terms of first principles, I think the judge is going to be looking at uh, my job is moving this criminal case to the the end um, and having a decision one way or the other from a jury. I think the issue is going to be more from Donald Trump's side. How does he deal with being under indictment in one case or maybe two, three, or four cases? My own I'm not I'm not a political pundit, but my own sense is that one of the reasons he didn't ask for a sort of a quick trial is he sort of is going to run, I think, and has run as sort of the outlaw president, um, that he's very counter government and um, and and very much playing the victim. And so this will, I think, play into that particular narrative. Uh, during the arraignment on Tuesday, Judge Juan Merchan who is presiding over the case, actually warned both parties, the prosecution and the defendant, Donald Trump, to refrain from rhetoric that could incite violence. Um, Hours later, former President Trump returned to Florida, uh, to his club Mar-a-Lago, and proceeded to call uh, Bragg a criminal. He proceeded to deride Judge Mershon. He singled out members of both the judge's family and the DA's family. Judge Mershon said he had no intention at this point to issue a gag order of the defendant, former President Trump. What can you tell me about gag orders and when they are likely to be used? So I guess the first thing I just want to note is just how remarkable the conversation is that we are having, that I have prosecuted numerous organized crime cases when I started out as a prosecutor this topic of a boss of a crime family um, and whether they would go after a judge or a prosecutor never came up. That's just not something that's done. We are having this conversation about inciting violence and about someone attacking the family of the DA and the judge about the former president of the United States of America. It is really breathtaking. Um, and it, I know that a lot of people think I'm being naive because of what we've lived through, but that is just a remarkable state. And you're going back to your first question about is this a sad day or not? That's one of the reasons that it is sad. I mean, the idea of the sort of de- just how debased the sort of Oval Office and the institution of the president. I mean, I remember going into the Oval Office under different administrations, and each time you are in awe of the institution. And it didn't make any difference whether it was a Democrat or Republican. You just felt as you really did feel like an American. So to answer your question, um, so the judge has various things that he can do. It's important to remember that there's two things that he's going to be thinking about. One is nothing that do with violence. It has to do with um, essentially um, commenting on the case in a way that makes it hard to pick a jury. Both sides are not supposed to do that. And that's both in state court and federal court. There's supposed to be limitations on essentially being out there every day talking about the case and putting your side out there, meaning you try your case in court. Um, and uh, in federal court, those are called sort of free press fair trial rules. The second thing the judge worries about is you cannot incite violence and you can you cannot cannot commit violence, period, and particularly when you're out on bail. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump is defendant Donald Trump right now. So um, as the judge did in a very measured way is... He started with like, this is like children saying to both sides, of course, it's only one side that has actually said anything that is possibly inciting violence. Um, I don't mean in terms of the first issue, both sides have said things. But in terms of potential violence, you really only have one side that has done that. But he has said, knock it off. I expect the parties to behave. If you have children, you can you understand what's going on, which is that's notice um, as to what is expected. And if it continues, which unfortunately it appears to have continued hours later, uh, then uh, that is something that the judge can say, bring them back in and can start imposing more and more rules. But how common is 
the use of a partial gag order or a gag order? Um, so federally, it is routine. Um, the, so all of the cases I did in the special counsel, the the local rules have a um, a form of a gag order about not speaking about the case. How about at the New York municipal level? That is not a routine um, issue. It is very rare um, to have that, and that's one of the reasons that you saw sort of this sort of sort of one toe in the water and sort of this incremental step. Is it conceivable that you could have a candidate for president of the United States operating under a gag order or a partial gag order? Well, it depends what it says. Um, just you can, I mean, this is what's so remarkable about this conversation. There's nothing that would prevent him in a gag order from talking about um, policies. What he wants to do as president, what he wants to say about his adversary. Um, you could imagine a gag order that says this, don't um, attack and belittle and threaten the judge on the case. Mm -hmm. Don't do that with respect to the family members. That that has nothing to do with um, the political sphere. Um, and so that to me is so gag order could thing. be tailored specifically to the kind of language that would be acceptable or unacceptable for defendant Trump to use. Yes, and you know one of the, the sort of analogies is when Roger Stone was prosecuted. Uh, this was in federal court. Uh, there was a sort of standard gag order that is just don't talk about the case, um, but you can go about your life. And he is released. And he posted online a picture of the federal judge. And on the side, there was crosshairs. And there was a hearing. Mm -hmm. He testified that the real, first he said it wasn't even him, that, that it, he that had posted it. it. Um, the judge didn't believe that because of a whole series of the evidence that came out about it. And I remember the judge saying, how hard was it to find a photo of me without crosshairs? Um, and there was a gag order in place. Now, that obviously is a very different situation in terms of he, Roger Stone was not running for office. Um, but that is not doing something like that is not political speech. You can still run for president and not do something like that. You don't have to have a picture of yourself with a bat um, mm -hmm. and Alvin Bragg's image on the other side. So those are all things that you can tailor this so that um, our right to vote and to choose the candidate um, can be honored and the candidate's right to mm -hmm. um to solicit votes and to say why they're a good candidate can all be done, but there's zero reason that you need to be threatening violence with respect to anybody who's part of the process. A central figure in this case is Michael Cohen, the former lawyer to uh, former President Trump who made the payments to Daniels um, as part of the scheme to be reimbursed by President Trump. Former President Trump, um, he ultimately, of course, served time in federal prison for related finance violations, among other matters. Yes. Uh, but he has since said that he only pled guilty to protect his family. Look, it seems to me that Cohen has a credibility problem. Huge. Absolutely. There's no question. And one of the things I thought was fascinating, and you may have had the same reaction, uh, when you read the statement of facts, which is you know, that gives you a lot more meat on the bones, um, you know, Michael Cohen has a role, but I was very interested that they sort of downplayed his role, that David Pecker has a huge mm -hmm. role in terms of um, establishing the scheme. And there also appears to be, let's say appears, um, a lot of documents um, that are corroborative. But you can under, I can definitely see the government at trial saying, you know, they want to paint Michael Cohen as the star witness, but actually the documents are the star witness and David Pecker has a huge role and whatever might you hear from Michael Cohen, it's corroborated. David Pecker, of course, who is the publisher of the National Enquirer, who helped Donald Trump in his campaign by suppressing negative stories about him. Um, what would you advise Michael Cohen if he were your witness in terms of the posture he's taken publicly, which is that he's talking quite a bit. Yeah, well, there are reports that the DA's office, um, and actually they said this to edit the arraignment, that they have uh, told him essentially, please 
stop going on air. Uh, and that I think should apply to Michael Cohen and his counsel. Uh, and um, that one, that's not great just in terms of the DA wants to try the case in court. You shouldn't be out there sort of conditioning the market um, mm -hmm. on either side. Um, and it's not helpful to your case. Um, I have never had a case where um, my so-called cooperating witness was out speaking publicly over and over again. Now, the DA's office knows what they got. I mean, this is not a surprise. I mean, one of my reactions was it's not a surprise. And Michael Cohen's sort of um, being enamored of the media and his lawyer being enamored of the media struck me, well, I can understand how these are peas in a pod is how, why he worked for Donald Trump. Yeah. It seems yeah. very, very it similar. There's a moth to a flame. It all tracks. Um, look, observers point out that of all the potential cases that are to be brought before the court um, related to the former president, that this is one of the weakest uh, and potentially the easiest to portray as a witch hunt. Um, Bragg has already taken a lot of heat for being the first prosecutor to file charges against a former president. The Wall Street Journal even editorializes that this could open a Pandora's box. What's your response? So I think that there's no question that this case is the least serious. I won't say the weakest because we don't know what the proof is yet um, on this case or any of the other uh, cases that have not yet been brought. Um, but I do think it's the least serious. If you're Which asking, is not to say it's not serious? Or is it, do you, I mean, is uh, it serious? I mean, it's a criminal case. No, it, I'm so not you're saying, saying it's I'm, the least serious of the four? Yes, I think it's the least serious. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, just but you're right. I'm not saying it's not serious and I'm not saying it shouldn't be brought. Um, I do think the issue of, are you opening up a Pandora's box? Are you in, engaging in selective prosecution is a real issue that people have to be very focused on. It is important to hold leaders to account criminally. The, the answer to say, well, don't ever indict a, a former president because you're going to suddenly become a banana republic. My view is you become a banana republic if you don't bring those charges, but you have to be sure that it is not selective prosecution. Now, as we talked about, if, if the president, uh, former president were to be indicted on the January 6th uh, matters, that answers itself because there are hundreds of people who are foot soldiers who are in jail for it. So the idea that the leader, if he is charged, um, would not be held to account, um, you just don't can't even begin to have that discussion um, because you would say, of course you should do that. And we actually, I think, would not be a nation of law if we don't hold somebody like that to account, assuming you can prove the case. I mean, you have to establish that first as a prerequisite. But I think um, the other thing I would say to sort of the Wall Street Journal uh, piece, which I think is a serious issue um, to discuss, is it is really important to remember that we in this country have a check on that problem. This is not something where uh, there's a show trial one of the things that millions of Americans have served on juries, criminal and civil. And one of the ways you check this is not just at the grand jury stage, which admittedly is just probable cause. But as I mentioned, one way to check that problem is you, a DA can't just be like, oh, this person's going off to jail. That is going to have to be 12 average Americans making the decision that this has been proved beyond a reasonable doubt, and they are unanimous. That is required. Um, and so one of the ways that you check that problem is our criminal justice system. And I, the final point, just to belabor this, is um, it's not like Alvin Bragg reached out to some case that was happening in Wisconsin or Hawaii. The case that he is doing relates to the place where Trump lived and had his organization. So it is the local DA. You are not dealing with the problem of, oh, aren't you opening up this Pandora's box to DAs around the country because this, is, this was the former president's hometown. Against the backdrop of this new precedent being set of a former president being indicted and arraigned, if we are to hold our leaders criminally accountable, would you have preferred one of the other cases 
happen first? Yes. Uh, the reason is precisely what we've been talking about in terms of selective prosecution, that it's it's really important that leaders be held to account, but it's so much easier to make that argument. Um, it's not that it's not applicable to the current situation, is that it's so easily made in connection with January 6th or even Mar-a-Lago um, in terms of what happened there. So I just think in terms of public acceptance and understanding that it would be preferable. But you know what? Life is messy. Um, and there was a statute of limitations here, and it's not one prosecutor, there's three prosecutors. So we may find ourselves in a situation where in several months, this all sort of looks like a footnote to history because the current case, yes, it was brought first and it is an important moment for American history, but that it, it in a few months, really, we're well past that. When you say Mar-a-Lago, you're, of course, referring to the special counsel's investigation into former President Trump's handling of classified yes. documents. Yes, and, um, and allegedly obstructing that national security investigation. This program is a revival of Firing Line that William F. Buckley Jr. hosted for 33 years. So we always have an appearance by the late William F. Buckley Jr. The most recent president to find himself in such deep legal peril was Richard Nixon. Uh, two months before Nixon resigned, Vice President Gerald Ford appeared on the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. and said this. In the event that you become president, would you grant amnesty to everyone involved in the so-called Watergate affair? I'm not sure, uh, Bill, that uh, I ought to uh, undertake to respond to a question of that kind. Um, in the first place, I don't anticipate uh, becoming president. And to speculate in such a sensitive area without knowing who might be convicted and who might be acquitted, I think would be presumptuous and ill-advised. Vice President Ford, of course, didn't answer the question about whether right. he would pardon or not. But right. what we do know is that he did go on to pardon President Nixon. And there are legal scholars who since then have argued that the act of pardoning the former president has created a sense that former presidents are immune from prosecution for decades, even after they leave the presidency. Um, do you agree with that analysis? And is that on some level good? So I don't think it's good to answer that, that part. And I, I think it is important that we don't have kings or eventually queens in this country, where if that, that is the political office that you hold, that that has this unique component that you will not be held to account criminally. And remember that the uh, former president is somebody who's under investigation for crimes that were committed before, during, and after his presidency. So why should the fact that you uh, one time were president of the United States mean that all of that is wiped uh, clean. Do you think that Nixon's being pardoned did set a precedent for former presidents not being charged? Um, you know, I don't know that I would go that far because um, there were, in his case, real consequences to his actions. I mean, he was disgraced and he left office. That is very different than uh, having no consequences. And when you're a prosecutor, one of the things and one of the factors that you're supposed to consider is whether there are lesser means to deter the kind of conduct that happened. And so that at least would be a factor. Um, but one of the things um, that you mentioned is the, the Department of Justice has a policy that you cannot indict a sitting president. If you cannot indict um, under that policy a sitting president, but when that president leaves office, your view is we're only going to look forward and not backwards. That is creating a de facto system of somebody being above the law. And, you know, that's where I think both, both as an American and as somebody who spent so many years in the Justice Department, to me, that is anathema to the rule of law. Let me ask you about one of the other cases, because um, you served as general counsel for the FBI. So you have really deep knowledge about how classified information ought to be handled. 
Secret Service agents connected to Trump are now testifying before a grand jury uh, in this case about the documents that were at Mar-a-Lago. Um, are we seeing signs that an indictment could be coming in that case? Yes. Uh, I think that uh, both the uh, reports with respect to the Secret Service, the uh, uh, the decision that Mr. Corcoran, one of Donald Trump's lawyers, had to go into the grand jury and testify. Uh, I think those are all signs that it's it's uh, going to come to a head one way or the other in terms of that case. I will say that the decision whether Secret Service agents need to testify is a complicated issue and a serious step because there is a downside to that. Their first priority is the safety of the person they are protecting. And they're not there to sort of you know, be there to report on everything that the person is doing. On the other hand, they are United States law enforcement, and they actually have a duty to report any criminal conduct. So it is, you don't want to do anything that undermines the um, efficacy of their safety mission. Um, but here, they very well could have direct evidence of a crime. And right now, we're only in the position where the grand jury would hear that. There, there is no sort of public revelation of that. Um, but but there, that is a complicated discussion. You wrote a book, Where the Law Ends, about your time as a lead prosecutor with Special Counsel Robert Mueller. You lament that more wasn't done to hold Trump accountable. And there was a very public aspect of the narrative um, in that case. I wonder how Trump's defenders were able to shift the narrative in that situation that creates a teachable moment for these upcoming cases. Um, that's a great Really great question, because one of the things that happens uh, in our prosecutorial system that is um, a benefit is that prosecutors, as we've heard repeatedly from the current attorney general, are supposed to speak through their public filings. But there is an imbalance because the defense, uh, in some ways quite rightly, does what they can to... Um, make sure that the public understands their view of a case outside of the courtroom. Um, now, sometimes we've talked about there can be gag orders and there can be limits. But um, when you have a case that has a sort of national profile, that is an aspect of the criminal defense. Mm -hmm. They will be thinking about that. And the government cannot start talking about um, why the defendant is guilty. That that falls into what I call the Jim Comey rule. That is, which, and I don't mean that in a positive way. Um, I, you are not supposed to do that, particularly, by the way, in his case, talking about somebody who is not being charged. But even when you do charge the person pre um, the trial, before there has been a decision by a jury that the person is guilty, that's not what you're supposed to do. Uh, and I think one way to deal with that imbalance is that I do think that there are things that a prosecutor can talk about that don't cross that line into saying why the defendant is guilty. An example, I think, that I thought was very, very useful by Alvin Bragg in his press conference it was taking on this issue of selective prosecution. He didn't use the word selective prosecution, mm -hmm. but one of the things he did is he talked about how the charges, the 34 false filings, are bread and butter charges in the DA's office, that these are routinely charged. Um, and what he was saying is, you know what? We use this against people who are involved in sex trafficking, bank secrecy, tax offenses. This is no different. Um, to not charge this would be treating the former president better, um, not worse. And so I think that doesn't cross the line because that is not talking about why the defendant is guilty or not. That is talking about why the charges are consonant with the rule of law. Um, and, you know, that, that's something to go back to. You talked about Richard Nixon. Archibald Cox very famously gave a press conference where he talked about why 
he was not willing to um, accept a compromise where he wouldn't actually get the so-called Nixon tapes. Mm -hmm. And instead of just writing a brief that went to the Supreme Court that people would have to sort of a turgid legal argument, he wanted to have a press conference where people could judge him and his motives and hear from him in plain English why it was important and that didn't, and he said at the outset, he said there, I'm limited in terms of what I can say because he wasn't going to start talking about why Nixon was guilty or not guilty, but he could deal with the issue. And I thought that is so important to have that educational function. And that's something that I do think that prosecutors have to, it's outside of the, what they're comfortable doing. But I think that especially in a case like this, it's going to be important to do. Final question. Uh, as we look forward in the next eight to 12 months, is there any chance that this doesn't end up in trial? Yes. Um, uh, I think that we could end up very well with four separate indictments. So you're suggesting that all of the actions from yesterday may not bear out in court until after the presidential election of 2024? That may happen, right. I think, um, so certainly if there were to be a January 6th uh, indictment in either Georgia or federally or both. Those are significant cases and they haven't even been brought yet. Um, and those cases can take a while. Let me give you one data So they point. would have a bearing on this case? They would. Th the, or the is, timeline for this case? Um, no, so if you're just asking about the current case, um, the current case could go before um, the election, but it also could not. Let me give you on the, in Manhattan, let me give you a data point. The Trump Organization trial, they were charged in, I believe it was July, and it took 16 months between the indictment of uh, Mr. Weisselberg, the chief financial officer, and the two Trump So you're saying there's a chance this could all be delayed till after the 2024 election. Yeah, so let's, let's break it down to the Manhattan case first. So one data point for the Manhattan case is the Trump Organization and Mr. Weisselberg indictments. Um, they were uh, cases that took 16 months to go from indictment to trial. So that's one data point. It doesn't mean that that's going to happen in this case, but you could imagine this case you know, being shorter or longer. The other cases have not even been charged yet. Um, and in cases like uh, like the January 6th case, whether it's at the Georgia level or at the federal level, with cases that have not yet been brought, where you have to go through all of the things that due process requires, which is discovery and motion practice, there could be appeals. There are a number of things that are required by due process um, that could be quite a lengthy time. So I do think, and I've, I've said this on TV, which is, you know, people need to understand that for those people who were looking forward to the day that the former president was held to account and they thought it was required by the rule of law, well, the rule of law also requires that you're patient and understand that it means that he's entitled to a lot of due process like any other defendant in this country. Andrew Weissman, thank you for coming to Firing Line. My pleasure. 